equal for Keyshawn also. Yeah, I'll probably stay for like 10 minutes and I'll probably like, you know, sign off at around like 115 or so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, what we've been talking about reminded me of something that Buddha said to Rahula. Now, Rahula was his actual natural son, but the word Rahula actually, uh, you can hear the word hoop in it. And it has to do with a bondage or a fetter in the sense that the Buddha was making a joke mm-hmm. that this, this kid that's here is a duty <clears throat> that I have to do or um, a, a, a line or an attachment. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, there's a story behind it in the sense that after he uh, sat under the Bodhi tree and figured out what was what, and he went and talked to his five old friends, uh, many, uh, or if, in fact, possibly all of them he knew, and that they all went with him when he left the palace. But he goes back to the palace, and he wants to see his wife, but his wife has already moved out of the, the king's palace into another palace. I mean, she came from a really wealthy family also. So the whole issue of Buddha and child support is mute because she was really well taken care of, as well as um, um, male um, community and all of that. But when the Buddha did go back, Mm -hmm. uh, she was still angry that he had left. She was the only one in the family that was because all the others knew that, in fact, that there was actually dangerous political reasons why he left not this fairy story that they tell in the suttas about he being cloistered and have to be kept in his place. And then he goes out and sees old age, sickness, death, and a monk, those four things. That story the Buddha tells to Ananda about a different Buddha in a different lifetime. Mm-hmm. That basically we've, we've been able to chase down the history that he left for political reasons. So when he comes back, the wife is angry and she tells her seven-year-old son now mm-hmm. to go get your inheritance from your father. Wow, she didn't know what she was saying because he did and the father did take the boy. Mm-hmm. He did say, okay, because she was thinking of inheritance in the sense of all of the wealth that she already had, and he had abandoned the wealth. And so she was saying, go get your inheritance, which is like, you know, here you are, a grubby old man walking around in the woods, and I'm sitting in a palace. Mm-hmm. That kind of mentality, though, they said that she actually was uh, uh, pretty well cloistered, that she actually went into the spiritual life kind of herself, and eventually she became a nun. But when she told him, her son, to go get his inheritance, she didn't understand that by telling him that, she was losing her son, because mm-hmm. he was, in fact, going to go with his dad. Mm-hmm. And so the dad gave him a new spiritual name, and the name that he gave him was Rahula. Okay, so there's actually several suttas about all of this. Uh, Rahula was a um, kind of an important player in some cases. Mm-hmm. And there was one occasion, I think it's number 61 in the uh, Majjhima Nikaya, where uh, Rahula is still young and um, he has been seen 
in the afternoon in a shop, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Domrado, can we take two steps back? Yes. So first off, uh, I had no idea. I mean, I don't know the sutras at all, really, but I had no idea that the Buddha had like a family, like a wife and kids. Okay. That's true. Okay. <laughs> I had no yeah, idea. That's, that's, that's why I'm telling you the story is so that you can get filled in on, on some <laughs> yeah. of this stuff. That in fact, he was raised by his aunt because his mother died in childbirth or within seven days of his being born. And that could have possibly influenced why he saw so much danger in sensuality and sexuality was because he lost his mother over it. And mm-hmm. so we can look at things from from that perspective. Um, but he was then raised by his uh, wife's sister, his aunt, who was also the wife of the king, that the king took both daughters when he uh, made a deal with uh, their dad. And so um, Ananda was, in fact, his cousin and half-brother, depending upon which way you looked at it. Half-brother from the dad's side and and cousin uh, from the mother's side. But they were both raised by the same woman. So you could say that, in fact, in in all cases of reality, they were brothers. Mm -hmm. But Ananda was much younger than, than the Buddha. Uh, and was a teenager when the Buddha left, and he actually became very political for a while before he finally gave that up and came and lived with the Buddha uh, after uh, 20 years that the Buddha was out in the woods, and Ananda comes along and then was with him for the past 25 years. This stuff is fairly well known and documented in the commentaries and whatnot. Okay, so Back what, to Rahula, or do you so have a question? You, you mentioned that the Buddha said that there was another someone, another Buddha in a past life. Uh-huh. Is that, so is that like a magical-like thing that we're talking about here? Or? Well, there's no, the most important quality of it has to do with that once we can see old age, sickness, and death, what that means is that we can see the danger in the way that we live our lives. We can see dukkha. That's what that teaching is about, is when you see that even your laptop goes through old age, sickness, and death. The sickness of it is, is that when you realize that you can get a much better laptop for a whole lot cheaper price, and this is an old clucker now, 10 years ago it was a really beautiful spiff machine, but now it's showing its age and maybe it's already on the shelf okay so everything goes through old age sickness and death everything and so then the fourth item is that there is a way out there is an an escape and that the escape from that is let us say picturefied by or um the example of it is with a mendicant, one who has left the, the life of other people. And so that's the important quality that it's a teaching, but that that teaching is actually designed for a particular audience so that we've come to understand because it's in the Dinga Nikaya, which is the long suttas, and that it appears uh, through very scholarly research, a lot of monks uh, agree with this, 
that the, the Dinga Nikaya was done in about 270 BC, a good 100 to 130 years after the Buddha died. He died in about 405, 407, 410 BC is when they know now that they've got it chased. In the beginning, they thought he died in about 460, 480 BC, but now they've got better data, and they, were, they know when he died, and that this was during the reign of Asok, and part of the reason for the manufacture of this document called the Dinga Nikaya was because it was a sales job to try to bring more Brahmins in, because Asok, in fact, was the emperor that had uh, made Buddhism the state religion. And so the, uh, <clears throat> this is a story, and a lot of the stories in the Majjhima are magical stories because they're introduction to Buddhism, and that always the introduction to Buddhism is magical because people think magically. And after they get into it a bit, then is when reality begins to dawn on them that the teachings of the Buddha had the enticement of talking magic, but in fact, the reality is, is that we're going to be doing reality instead. And you can see that most of the people in the time of the Buddha, in fact, believe in rebirth and reincarnation. So naturally, it, there's going to be quite a lot about rebirth and reincarnation in the suttas. But that does not mean that the Buddha taught rebirth and reincarnation. What he did is he taught people who believed it, trying to talk them out of their past and their future belief systems into living their life in the present moment. Got it. Okay, so back to Rahula. Back to Rahula. He's in the he's in the shop, and he lies about it. And then later the Buddha finds out that he has been in the shop and asks him, and and uh, Rahula lies to him. And so then the rest of the sutta is all about lying. And I picked up quite a number of things. One of the things that the Buddha does, because uh, this was kind of at lunchtime or something, the Buddha had his bowl out. And so he took the remnants of his bowl and shook it onto the ground and says, this is what a liar is, something that I throw out of my bowl, uneaten food, something not wanted. Mm -hmm. And then he puts the water in and scrubs the bowl out and then he says, uh, the dumping of the water, this is wastewater. If you don't want to eat the remnants of the food, you surely don't want anything to do with this wastewater. And a liar is nothing but wastewater. Mm -hmm. And then the next thing that the Buddha says to Rahula, which is, uh, is the profound point, which is going to where we were talking about before we turned the video on. And that profound point is, is that if one will lie, if we tell a lie, we will are capable of by that. That's like the crack of the door, opening the door. Once the door is unlocked and opened, any number of lies or other bad behaviors into the point of killing someone and lying about that is possible. That the really important door that are the wall that we're going to construct is that we're going to live in reality. We're going to tell the truth. We are not going to concoct a lie 
hoping that someone will believe it and that we normally lie out of what we consider self-protection. I don't want people to know what a bad jerk I am, and so I'll lie to them about it. Where, in fact, I would be much better off if I accepted I was a jerk and enjoyed it and spread my jerk with great joy. Then people wouldn't be so off on me about being such a jerk. Just enjoy being a jerk. Okay, I'm a jerk already. I love it. I love it. (laughs) But, oh, no, we lie because we do not like to be associated with that which we are associated with. Another way of looking at that, then, is to say that we want to be separated from the truth. We want a magic to happen. This is one of the beliefs in magic, is the ability to lie and the willingness to lie to get our way, to turn something that doesn't exist into something that does exist magically simply by lying about it. A young child, for instance, when mom asks, did you do your homework? And the child says, yes, I did my homework and lies about it. That's like the child having the magical thought. If I say that I did it, that means that I did it, which means that now I don't have to do it. The reality of the situation is mom going to check about that homework, find out that the child has lied. And now the child has got two problems. Mm-hmm. One They didn't do the homework and they got to do it. And number two, they got to put up with mom, caught him in a lie. Mm -hmm. That's the reality of the situation, huh? That's like, that's basically dukkha or suffering because you you don't want to, you want things to be different from what they are. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But if we can accept reality the way that it is, and enjoy the way things are, then we're quite willing to live in reality and not have to lie our way out of it. Mm -hmm. So all of this comes in many, many shapes and forms. And one of the ways of looking at it is in the sense of the precepts. In fact, the one that we're looking at here is Musa Wada, Weiramane, Sakabadam, Samatiyame. Musa Wada, the word Wada is like speech or talk. Uh, um, we get our word in English of voice from this because it's an Indo European language. Okay, so Avada or, or voice. Uh, In fact, that's also the same word as the Theravada, which means the voice or the the speeches of the elders, those who are old enough to have some wisdom. That's what the word Theravada means. Uh, And and a Thera, uh, we use uh, with monks as a monk who's been a monk for 20 years is a Thera. Mm -hmm. So uh, this uh, Musa Wada, or this uh, Theravada, and in fact, the Wada or the Vada is the V sound, that in Thai language, they don't have a V sound. They only have the W. That's why they say Musa Wada. In other languages, it would be Musa Vada. Mm-hmm. Okay? So, this wrong speech that we're talking about, as a precept, we teach our children to not lie, to not uh, engage in false speech, 
but then we set parameters around it like uh, punishments. We're trying to teach the children how dangerous it is to lie because the children themselves are not smart enough to see that the lie itself is dangerous. Mm -hmm. That they think that getting caught is dangerous. I see. Mm -hmm. Lying is okay. Getting caught lying is dangerous. And wisdom says, no, it's the lying that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. Why? Because we are separating from reality and wanting things to be different than they really are. So, in regard to the uh, Eightfold Path and the practice of the Eightfold Path with uh, right view and right um, uh, sati, right uh, effort, and right attitude, those things bring together a mind that's organized and unified. A mind that's organized and unified around reality will naturally refrain from telling lies, naturally refrain from telling lies, because to tell a lie means that we're tearing our own mind in half. Mm -hmm. And we often feel that way inside when we tell a lie. But in fact, uh, a remnant of that feeling was when I would say something to a student, say perhaps online or um, uh, even in a video, and then later I would have the thought, did I say the right thing or not? And then I want to go look up the sutta to make sure that, yes, what I said actually did came from the Buddha. I did not make that up. It is important not to make stuff up and, and put it into the mouth of the Buddha, that what we put into the mouth of the Buddha is only a rephrasing of what the Buddha himself would say. And so we naturally want to refrain from even that kind of lie is an inadvertent lie that we don't just make predictions or think we know something unless we actually know it. This has helped tremendously in my uh, depth of understanding of the Buddha Dhamma because I kept having to go back and recheck and figure out, did I say that or did the Buddha say that? Where did this stuff come from? Uh, not that I don't trust myself, but the process of me going through that is what built that trust up through knowledge and observation, as opposed to, to lying to myself and telling myself, I know the Dhamma, when in fact, I've got holes in it. Mm -hmm. If we can take it from there, we can say, wait a minute, we can apply that to our whole life. Mm -hmm. That let me start living honestly. Now, we also have to be kind of selective about when we're going to be honest because we can downright hurt people with the truth. We have to let them be ready for it. We can cause more damage with the truth than we can with a lie. Right. Uh, this is what we call brutal honesty. Let's not do our honesty brutally. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do our honesty with compassion and joy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we are still bound and obligated to speak the truth. Nice. This is, in fact, uh, uh, is a kind of a culmination of several or a number of very long talks that I had with Achan Po 
in more recent years about teaching the Dhamma and the supramundane Dhamma. That most uh, Dhamma is taught in the one-two punch, and that in fact that's the way that the Buddha taught it. In the sense of most of the people who come believe in rebirth and reincarnation. We take them where they are, we climb inside that model, and then we slowly move them out of it. And I have seen other, I've seen monks do that. I've seen monks be able to switch back and forth between talking to people who were mundane and talking to people who were noble. But Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa decided way back in the 30s that times have changed now. It's time to let the truth out. Let the people and let the world to deal with the reality of the situation. That it, you could say that maybe things got secretive. The real Dhamma became secretive when it actually was dangerous. Hmm. And that you can see that, in fact, it, from time to time, it can even be dangerous nowadays. I would go so far as, in fact, my favorite example is Angor. Have you ever heard of Angor? Angor Wat? Angor Wat is the number one spectacular uh, tourist attraction in the country of Cambodia, in the city of Siam Reap. And that that civilization died out suddenly and very quickly, but it was a huge civilization of more than a million people. It looks like that there was a combination of things, and one of them was is that they cut down too much forest in order to plant rice to support that huge population. And by cutting down the forest, they made themselves vulnerable to other tribes around, especially the Siamese. Mm -hmm. But there was another factor that I think is absolutely brilliant. And that was is that Angor and the whole civilization of Angor was... Um, uh, Hindu, and that they had a bunch of Hindu rituals and things that were magical. And one of the big magic was is that the river Mekong, when it uh, in the winter time, uh, when the spring comes, it thaws out, and all of this mountain water from the Hamadias and Laos and all of that come rushing down the Mekong River, and they get to the delta in Vietnam, in Vietnam, there in Saigon which is now renamed Ho Chi Minh City, it gets stuck. It gets stuck in that delta. It doesn't just flush right out to sea. Because it gets stuck with all that uh, rainwater coming down the river, the tributaries back up mm -hmm. so that most of the year the water comes this direction, but when all of the water from the Mekong is collecting here, it begins to back up. Yeah. The Brahmin priest knew exactly when that was going to happen and had a whole bunch of ceremonies and possibly runners and whatnot like that so that they could have the ceremony just at the time when the river stopped and started backing up because when it backed up, it flooded a huge plain then that was later used um, when it drained out for planting rice. That was their, their rice basin. And in fact, in many, uh, in many maps, there is in fact the picture on the map of a huge lake that's not a lake at all. <laughs> not, most of the year it's not. Mm -hmm. When the Buddhists came, the Buddhist monks, they said, wait a minute, rivers don't back up without a cause. Those rivers don't back up because some monk or some priest is standing there pouring water and doing an umi-dumi-gobby-gobby at the right moment. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Doesn't happen that way. All right? Right? And so the Buddhists, they went and they figured out what was going on and they told the truth. And they let the cat out of the bag and it got such a big deal that in fact what happened was is that the guys who were in the army, they quit the army. They weren't going to support the king and they weren't going to support this stupid religion that we could prove was absolutely false. Mm-hmm. And the whole civilization kind of got really, really weak in a hurry. I see. And then, so when they were invaded, they didn't have a chance. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there's a similar, I wonder if there's some sort of explanation like that with the uh, parting of the Red Sea. <laughs> Could possibly be. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But there, 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 a whole lot of people are trying to work that out <laughs> because they're really attached to an old story about was there a Moses, et cetera, like that, which is a different topic altogether. But it does fit into the idea of magical thinking. Mm-hmm. And so you could see how lying and magical thinking go hand in hand. That in fact, magical thinking is a form of a lie. Mm-hmm. is wanting things to be different than they are. Mm-hmm. And w- and the biggest example of that is people who, uh, and people who have a lot of money are famous for this, but a lot of people don't want to die. Mm-hmm. And if they've got a lot of money, they'll spend a lot of money trying to stay alive. Mm-hmm. Right? And some people go way, way over the moon trying to do that. Mm-hmm. One mm-hmm. was an emperor in uh, China that was uh, uh, somehow convinced that Mercury. Oh, yeah, yeah. The first was China. <laughs> right. And he wound up killing himself, trying to keep himself alive with Mercury. Right, right. And they wound up with this big tomb with all these Theravada soldiers and all of that is amazing what they've been able to discover there. And I think even now they don't want to open his tomb because they're afraid of the levels of Mercury toxicity right. there. Apparently, the writings contain like that he he had like a river of mercury or something like that put into the tomb. Exactly. <laughs> and so, naturally, yeah. the workers didn't who were putting that mercury river into that tomb. They didn't make it out alive. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> I think they were poly. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. Really ironic. Yeah. But there's been many others mm-hmm. who have don't gone to the ends of the earth like Ponce de Leon and the Fountain of Youth, etc. Okay, so you can see there are some huge, huge examples, but everyone has that kind of idea that I want to continue to live. When I get sick, I want to go to the hospital. I want to get fixed up. People are looking for implants. They're looking for genetic uh, modifications, and they're talking about living forever. We don't want to live forever. I want to die. <laughs> One of these days, I'm gonna have it up to here with this place. <laughs> <laughs> but many people they cling to life and they cling to life. Possibly they cling to life because they haven't gotten enough out of it. To where I've been here, I have done that. I have experienced so much stuff, good, bad, up, down, back and forth, and indifferent. And finally, I've gotten to the point that okay. Let me see something new, and the only thing I see new coming is being dead. <laughs> well, I know that. And so I'm quite willing to let that happen. 
though I know that I've got some responsibilities to my daughter and other things, and so I'm not going to actually go do something about it. But the point <laughs> is, is that most people mm-hmm. cling mm-hmm. to life. Mm-hmm. They cling and they cling and they cling to life and they want to stay alive. Mm-hmm. So naturally, when someone comes by selling an elixir of life, a lot of people are going to buy it. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And when some people buy a story uh, or come selling a story, you do this ritual. Mm-hmm. You don't have to actually buy my product, which means I've got to go out in the woods and pour a bunch of stuff together to make you drink it. Now I can just do some oomie doomie gobby gobby and you pay me the fee and guess what? Okay. And so here comes this thing called baptism. Oh, yes. Yes. Right. <laughs> and, the whole, and your soul and all that. <laughs> right, exactly. I thought you were going to health food drink. Mm-hmm. Pardon? I thought you were going to go with health food drink there. <laughs> same industry selling the same thing, except that those people don't promise that it works. <laughs> they only promise that it should work. <laughs> Okay, uh, so, so guys, I think it's probably a good point for me to stop here because it's around like one thirty ish here. Um, okay. I can't stay longer, but again, I think I have to, I have to, I have to sign off like pretty much like now. Okay. Well, <laughs> the talk, this yeah. talk is all about learning to learning how important it is to tell the truth, mm-hmm. and that when we tell the truth, we can give up all of the magic. Mm-hmm. Got it, got it. And okay. including the magic of I can stay along, I can live forever. Mm-hmm. That way I don't have to deal with being dead. <laughs> gotcha, if, gotcha. I, if I just stay alive and stay alive and stay alive, then I, if I, and, and basically being dead is mm-hmm. not the problem for people. Mm-hmm. It's getting dead is mm-hmm. the issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got it, got it. I see. The pain and the suffering and, and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and guess what? Uh-huh. The pain and suffering is almost always mental anyway. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Even mm-hmm. if there's bodily pain, the bodily pain, in fact, if it's a real trauma, mm-hmm. uh, a shock. Mm-hmm. Because I've been through this. I mean, I've been in some pretty horrific motorbike accidents, enough to see now finally that motorbikes are dangerous. But mm-hmm. the last superbike I had was only sold three years ago, so it took me a long time to figure it out. But yeah, during that time of actually getting your leg all busted up and mangled, mm-hmm. is not painful. Oh, your body shuts down like your sense. Because the body shuts the pain down. It's just, it's almost like numb. It's only later when you're trying to walk on crutches in a cast, that's when it's painful. Mm-hmm. It's when the leg is saying, get off of me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm trying to heal here. <laughs> okay, so even with that, with the pain of death, the pain of death actually has no sting, as the Christians say. Mm-hmm. But you can defeat death because what we're defeating is the fear of death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The fear of death, the fear of dying, the fear of the pain of death, and also the fear of missing out on something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are we missing out on? Mm-hmm. All the stuff I want. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But if I get myself already to the state that I don't want anything, then why should I want to hang around to get something that I don't even need anymore? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Definitely makes sense. Right. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Well, 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 we'll see you later and we'll continue on with uh, um, mm-hmm. uh, Keyshawn. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, I'll see you guys next time. Thank you. Yeah. Nice Have to meet you, Willie. Yeah, Have a good day. Yeah. <laughs> That's such an interesting concept or uh, thing that you said there. It just really has me thinking about um, hmm, my own practice and how I'm starting to see, like, you come to the present moment and, like, it just really is nothing better than than uh, being here now. <laughs> so that whole like you know n- you know being with reality, and if this is a part of reality, then that's where you want to be. Mm-hmm. No need to try and prolong anything. There's there's another way of looking at it also, <clears throat> and that is is that. Humans do not live in actual reality. It's impossible. No animal does. What humans do is we live in a constructed mental reality, a world that we understand. If we lived in a world of uh, own reality, then there would no there would no be cognition. There would not be any memory. There would not be any perception. It would be just raw input. Yeah. But what we do instead is we take our raw input, the consciousness of the input, and we process it in order to make sense out of it. Mm-hmm. And what do we process it with is thoughts and memories and things of the past. So we bring the past in to try to understand the present, and by doing so, we color the present moment. Sometimes we do that subtly, sometimes we do it bigly, really bigly. Yeah. And the bigger we do it, the more magical it is. Because the magic is, is that we think that what used to be still is, rather than seeing every moment as fresh. Mm. Also, when we do process it, we often process it with a memory system that is faulty. In the sense that, and and it took me a while to figure this out, but I did finally figure out that I cannot trust my memory. I can trust things written down and facts and and whatnot like that. But the occasion actually was... uh, um, uh, it was a, a pecan tree, or as they say in the South, pecan. The pecan tree, I remember my grandfather planting it. And my mother came back a few years later when we were talking about this and says, no, 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 no. That tree was planted before you were born. I know because it was planted before I met your dad. And I know because I lived at home then. When I met your dad, I was living in blah, blah town. Okay? That tree was planted before you were born. Get over it. 
and I got over it with the reminder of, hey, wait a minute, I invented that memory. I invented that, and I thought it was real. If I'm going to do that with that pecan tree, I'm going to do that with a whole bunch of other stuff. I cannot actually trust my memory. And then when I come to understand that mostly what we remember is our trial is our childhood traumas, and we very rarely remember all of the good times. A good example of that is little Billy is writing on the wall, and Mama comes in, and instead of saying, my, what a beautiful piece of artwork, let's take a photo of that and put it on the refrigerator, and let's uh, cut the wall down and put it in the museum and all of that kind of stuff, and by the way, I'm going to buy you an art kit, and we're going to turn you into a Rembrandt or a Picasso or something. Does mom say that? No. She comes in and says, what are you doing writing on the wall? You're not supposed to write on the wall. The wall is, I mean, we don't, we don't own this house. We're going to have to paint the wall or the landlord's going to charge us a lot of money. Yeah, nah, 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 nah. And guess what? He could have been a Rembrandt, but not now. He's going to remember his mom chewing his butt out because he was drawing on the wall. And he'll remember the rest of his life, I can't write, I can't draw, I can't do this, and I can't do that. And he becomes illiterate in a way that he could have become a master just because of the way of his mother's attitude, but he remembered it as a trauma. When we pile up all the traumas that we've had all our our lives and use that as our collective base or pool for gathering up all of our memories, then we're going to remember a bunch of shit. Better not to remember that shit. Better just to let's live in the present moment. I don't have to remember all the bad stuff that happened because, believe me, a lot of stuff happened bad to you. You remember it. But you don't remember a whole lot of the good stuff, and I bet when you were a kid, more good stuff happened than bad. And you do remember some of the good stuff. But if you keep remembering long enough, you're going to run into something bad. So it's better just to not remember much of anything at all and be better, closer to living in reality in the present moment. They say, in fact, that when we live in a constructed reality that is somewhat different than actual reality, that that itself is dukkha and it's magical thinking. And the closer to our our internal representation and understanding of real reality, then the happier we are, the more satisfied we are. For instance, seeing a car in a showroom and you just see the car in the showroom. Or you can see the car in the showroom and remember your grandfather's car, a jalopy, and look how nice this one is. And then we have the idea, I like this car. And then we go from there, I like this car, do I want this car? And the reality is the car is sitting there wanting you to want it. Mm-hmm. The car just is. All of the wanting is manufactured within the mind. So you have car in reality, and I want that car in the mind. In that regard, 
I want that car, which means now I'm not good enough without that car. Before I walked into that showroom, I was happy. Now I see that car, I want it, and I am not so happy. Now I've got a job to do. Mm -hmm. Getting know, a loan and getting a job and maybe all kinds of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, I, I'm going to have to deal with those, sort of the opposite mechanism tomorrow of not wanting to. Are we back? Oh, you're back. Several. Okay. Yes. Um, yes. I was just saying, you know, the that's like the desire part of things, but then like the aversion, like not wanting to put up with something, mm -hmm. there's that too. But I'm just thinking about like lately um, and also like kind of what you were saying about like forgetting it. That's been my direct experience during. Okay. You cut out again. I don't think it'll happen again. I went on my hotspot. Hopefully, we're good now. <laughs> um, but what I was saying was that um, I really started using the never mind start again a little bit more during my meditation. But like I say, like the way that you say it, like never mind, you know, starting <laughs> like that. Yeah, I mean because. Really, it is like, and it's really a never mind. Like, I'm just like, okay, just forget about that, you know? Don't mm -hmm. need to, to dig into that memory and keep that that false representation about what's going on going, you know? And, or, and, you know, sometimes when I need a little bit more oomph, I'll take in the aha, I see you, Mara. You know? <laughs> depends, on, depends on the occasion. Mm -hmm. But what I was trying to say again was... uh. And then also with that is is uh, the forgetting is how you talk about how like a dog forgets very easily, mm -hmm. right? But I've been using the dog a lot more during my meditation a little bit because I know you saw, said like a couple different things where you say like like down boy, you know, with, like anxiety, <laughs> like down, like it's false alarm. And then also how you talk about how a dog, you don't treat the dog like critically as it grows up. The dogs get the dog gets the nurturing treatment all the way throughout. So I've been kind of, you know, petting my inner dog and saying I'm really happy to see you. <laughs> That's the name of a new book, I can tell you. All right, patting my inner dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, that's really what I've been using though, is like like uh treating myself sort of like that. Or, you know, just like, you know, my, myself in that way, as much as I can see it and um, nurturing it in that way. And we know that the dog forgets easily and the dog just, you know, give the dog some love. And it, and that that really works. I mean, that's we were talking about those last two sessions about the situation with the girl and those type of things. But when you started to say you recognize that you could give yourself those feelings. So I started saying, like, I'm like, I'm happy to see you. Like, I'm happy that you're here. <laughs> Like to myself, I noticed I was getting like the same thing that I was like looking for. 
Ah. You know? And I thought Great. that was really incredible. Mm. So it's been really, that's been really great. Um, but what I wanted to say was like tomorrow, like okay, when I go to work and things like that, and as I'm working in the environment, you know, in my, in my regular work environment, there's that factor of, you know, what's going to be the reality and what's going to be in my mind. You know, something could, something could happen where maybe there's a mistake that's made or maybe something that's going to make me not look so great and I have to send a certain email or something like that. Is these kind of things maybe could possibly come up, you know, I'm just saying. But I noticed that, like, you know, in the past, like, there's been situations where I have to bring up something like, you know, this doesn't look right or whatever, and maybe there was a mistake. Um, and then there's always negative feelings associated with that, of course, because you don't mm-hmm. want to deal with the reality. It's almost like you want to cover it up. Like, you don't want to face that, you know, but it's always better to, to say, you know, this is what happened. Exactly. That actually is part of the change of attitude. And that uh, the Buddha mentions that most specifically and refers to it as what is called the fourth knowledge. And the fourth knowledge is the knowledge that it is better to admit wrongdoing and to come out of it than it is to hide that wrongdoing and stay stuck in it. Mm-hmm. That's the fourth knowledge. But that actually takes the winner's attitude to a higher level. The winner is the one who can joyfully say, hey, yeah, wow, did I screw that up? I'm not going to screw it up next time. Yeah. So just to freely admit, yeah, more than I really messed that up. Mm-hmm. But that's coming to honesty. And we can come to that honesty happily in the Dhamma. But to begin with, when we begin to practice that, we can very, very barely get out that I was, that it was my fault. But if you keep adding that joy to that, then every time that we admit that we've done wrong, we become more joyful. Because that's, that's the recognition of a job well done. And it's also a lesson well learned. How many times do I have to screw up before I finally learn the lesson? The answer is now that I recognize that I've screwed up, that's the lesson. Thank you very much. <laughs> Finished with that one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can't say that I've uh, not made the same mistake more than once before. So, <laughs> but. But now you're beginning to wake up to that. And so you can see the danger in such behavior. And uh, to recognize that danger, to recognize that you harm someone, and to apologize and perhaps make amends for it. Yeah. With the idea, the most important amends is, I'm not going to do that anymore. And then, in fact, that helps uh, to a certain degree when we're actually in practice sessions in meditation. That for some reason, some old memory boils and bubbles up. And we sit there just freaked out about how bad of an asshole I was back then. Mm-hmm. Ah, yeah. I did that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. when we recognize that, then we can say, aha, yes. But one thing is for sure, and that is I see how tragic that is, and I am not going to do it again. I am 
finished with that behavior. I am not going to do that. I'm going to set a boundary for myself and I'm not going to do that anymore. And when we get that firm determination, now we can feel secure again because I'm not going to be stepping in that pile of mess again. I was going to say that that's a pretty enlightening thing to do. Like in the in terms of it, it feels lighter when you do sort of own up to it, you know, mm-hmm. you get it off your chest, essentially. That's so where like, it resides. And that's why it's called freedom. Get that stuff off your chest. You know, I'm finished with that. I'm not going to do that anymore. I yeah. don't have to carry the guilt around anymore. I can be dispensed with that guilt because I recognize it with honesty. Mm. So you yeah. see how all of this stuff fits together. That if you want to feel bad, keep lying to yourself about it. And if you want to feel good, get it off your chest. Yeah. I mean, I can talk about a specific example, actually. And this wasn't even anything to do with lying or anything like that. But just like in my own head, like I was constructing a thing where um, at the end of the day, like something happened and then it was important for me to give like an update on the progress that I had made. And I had when I realized I would have to like send that email out, I was like, but what if they're not satisfied with the like, what if they think that I should have gotten farther along in this process? What you know, aphorisms, so, right? I know that. <laughs> what was that? What aphorism? Yeah. What if this and what is that? Yeah. What I was. If just, I, I was what if they don't it. like it? Whatever. We don't know. Why don't we wait and find out? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Wait and find out. Do an investigation. Right, let's go do an investigation, but most people will just start to feel bad immediately because mm-hmm. we're in the habit of it. So we'll do a what if, and now I'm in panic mode. Mm. It's better to ask the question. Right, to so look, investigate, and if you find something that needs to be fixed, just fix it joyfully. Mm. Yeah, I think that'll help me with my, okay. <laughs> with my work. Well, I really am glad to see you again. Me too. Me too. I'm mm-hmm. glad I called again. Uh, I want to call again a little bit sooner and talk more about the practice. I've really been taking a lot to like gladdening the mind. I got to go soon because it's getting so late here, but <laughs> gladdening the mind is what the next topic we should talk about because I really enjoy doing that. <laughs> it's Excellent. Great. Yes, it's delightful. Allow yep. yourself to take delight in Delighting the mind. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's great. All right. Well, we'll see you next time then. Until next time. All right. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye.